Amen. So good to see you all this morning. We, uh, we used to play a game in an FCA called Hot Towel because we didn't always have a potato around. And I, don't, I guess there's a hot potato somewhere, but uh, and some kids have used a beanbag before, but the object of the game was to not get tagged while you were holding something. So, um, but here's the deal. We're going to tweak the game just a little bit. So, uh, Alex, you come help me out up here. I'm going to throw this beanbag to somebody, and you try to touch them before they get it back to me. Let's... let's uh, Let's see if Alex can get anybody. If it comes to you, just be ready because it might come a different direction. Well, that's pretty good. Zach's fast. He's pretty good at this game, so you just never know which way it's going to go. All right, Alex, I know you're faster than that. Come on now. Come on, come on, come on. You can get Seth. Come on, come on. You got it. You got it. All right. Can you get to Andrew over there? You didn't even try. All right. All right. Get close to Seth. All right, you guys. All right, good job. We used to play that game and have a lot of fun with that, and we would try to get our friends in trouble, put something in their hands just at the moment that they were about to be tagged, and then put somebody in the middle, and and uh, they might not be as good a sport as Alex is, and we could see how long we could keep them trying to to touch. You didn't want to, you didn't want to get caught touching the hot towel or a hot potato or whatever, and you've all played games like that uh, in ministry. Sometimes we refer to hot potatoes as those subjects that nobody wants to really deal with. Those subjects that, uh, for some reason or another, we just think, uh, I don't want to touch that. Uh, Believers, pastors will often handle certain topics in the Scripture that way. Now, one reason I like to preach through a book of the Bible is that we come across a topic at a time that uh, I can say, well, that's just where the Lord brought us at that time. If that uh, confronted or convicted you, well then, uh, I was just kind of, as one of uh, one pastor said, aiming a shotgun down in a hole. If you happen to be there, uh, then that's your fault. But there are subjects, and, and I, I solicited some feedback, certain things I have been asked questions about over the years, uh, things that I've been asked about recently that I've discussed with different age groups in the church, things people have asked me, and then I solicited some more help from other pastors. What are those hot potatoes? that we need to be sure that we deal with. And I really felt that the Lord freed me up this summer to say, let's take the summer weeks, let's take the Sundays throughout the summer, and let's just answer some of these questions. Let's deal with some of these hot topics, some of these hot potatoes, if you will. Uh, This morning, we're going to look at the question, should Christians lighten up on marriage and sexuality? That's one of the hot potatoes. Nobody likes to really talk about that, but it's certainly a a hot potato, a hot topic even in our culture today. And so I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we'll look at verses 1 through 8. And as you're finding your place and standing this morning, I'll, I'll mention some of these other subjects. We'll be looking at other sins against the body, other than the sexual sins that we'll look at this morning. Uh, there are other sins against the body. There's uh, the subject of biblical manhood we're going to look at on Father's Day. That's uh, something that's not a popular topic in our culture anymore to talk about Biblical manhood, spiritual leadership among men, and things like that. We're going to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit, and what are the, what's the real evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in somebody's life. We're going to talk about politics on God and country. Should the church even be talking about politics? We'll answer that question. We're going to talk about Sundays. Is the Lord's Day sacred anymore? Because I'm being told that from my generation down, those younger than me, Sunday's not really sacred. You can take it or leave it. So we're going to answer that question scripturally. Is Sunday sacred anymore? Biblical stewardship is one of those hot topics. Other religions. What about all these other people? Um, Divine sovereignty as far as election, predestination, and free will. How does all that work? Who's right in this debate? We'll deal with that subject. 
last days. Are we living in the last days? When's the rapture going to take place? That's one of the questions we'll deal with at the end of the summer. And then the subject of hell. You know, a movie comes out, heaven is for real, and I believe heaven is for real. Like I said, I didn't need a movie to tell me that, but sometimes we try to just so uh, look at it in such a way that we think, well, everybody's going there. The truth of the matter is everybody's not going there. Um, we need to be answering another question as well. Is hell for real? And we'll talk about that. Um, why are these hot potatoes? Well, usually it's because of the conviction. Maybe it's the conviction on the pastor because I'm going to deal with some subjects. Even next week, I'm going to deal with some subjects that convict me personally. And sometimes pastors uh, don't want to bring up a subject of gluttony when it's fried chicken and pound cake as far as the eye can see in, uh, in, in Baptist ministry. But uh, we're going to deal with some subjects that are, that are convicting. We're going to deal with some subjects that are confrontational. And some that are controversial that, quite honestly, we just have to say we, we need humility and the grace of God to approach this because Bible-believing Christians disagree on some of these subjects. And we're going to deal with them with the grace of God and, and be led by the Spirit of God in this process. But today, today's question, what's the big deal? Should Christians lighten up on marriage and sexuality? And let's look at the text here, First Thessalonians 4. Finally, then, brethren... We urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from how you ought to walk and please God. For you know the commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified, for God did not call us to uncleanness but to holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Father, we depend this morning on your Holy Spirit to guide us into this truth, to bring about the conviction and the grace that we need this morning. Lord, we thank you for your truth, and we can preach and teach and live it unapologetically, regardless of what this world says. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated this morning. So what's the big deal? Should Christians lighten up? I know the world would love to see us kind of lighten up and back off of this discussion of biblical marriage and and the Bible's stance on sexuality. Should we back off, and some would put it this way, shouldn't we at least adapt to the changes that have taken place in culture? Uh, You might hear someone say, well, pastor, we aren't living in the first century anymore. Wake up, we're in the 21st century. Well, let's be reminded of some things. Not much has really changed throughout the course of the years. Anyway, I know we like to think about the good old days and Man, things are a lot different than they used to be. But Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica. He's writing to this body of believers in what was known as a queen city of Macedonia. It was immersed in the Roman culture, the Roman Empire, with all of the false gods. There was rampant sexual perversion all around them. There was... No internet available in those days, but everything that we can find on the internet, they could find in the public arena in Thessalonica and much of the Roman Empire. Thessalonica was strategically positioned along the road known as the Via Ignatia, bringing the east and the west, this great Roman highway. So everything, as a matter of fact, the city walls of Thessalonica 
had the, this Roman road, the Via Ignatia, come right through the city gates, right through the middle of town. So everything that was seen in the Roman Empire could be found in Thessalonica. And so it was exposed, the city was. Much like our homes, because of the internet and because of all that's going on in the world, we feel like the world's highway is coming right through our homes, right through our minds, right before our eyes. That was happening in the first century as well because of the influence of the Roman Empire on this city. The virtual world highway is the same way in our homes today. So did Paul let them off the hook and say, well, you know, this is a new day and time, and by the way, we're living under grace, and so let's just kind of win in Rome, do as the Romans do, let's just go along to get along, or did he present them with something that was radically different than what everybody around them were hearing and seeing and experiencing? Well, Paul didn't let them off the hook. Why do we take God's standards for marriage and sexuality so seriously? give you about three reasons this morning. The first one we see right here in the first couple of verses. We take seriously the commandments of Scripture. We take seriously. Why is marriage a big deal? Why is marriage and moral purity such a big deal for the body of Christ? It's because we take very seriously this book right here. That the Bible is the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God, and it speaks to us and provides us with our guide for faith and practice. When you come to verse 1, we understand that the, the apostles exhorted the believers on how to walk in a way that pleased God. We urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more. This is the abundant life. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. And he's saying here, Paul is saying, you need to be abounding, man. You need to be getting in on all that God has for you. And, and if you're going to do that, then your marriage is going to be right and you're going to avoid all of the sexual assault that's coming against you. He says, you've received from us, you've received instruction from us on how to please God. And then verse 2, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And when the apostles, the early church leaders, were passing along commandments, they were the authoritative substitutes for the Word of God at that time. As a matter of fact, many times they were delivering these letters, the actual Word of God. But the New Testament wasn't compiled yet, so they were building on, they were expounding on the Old Testament. When we see Jesus discussing the Scriptures, or the apostles discussing the Scriptures, they did not at that time have the completed New Testament. So they were expounding on the precepts and principles of the Old Testament And they had to see everything through the lens of the gospel that Christ had come and given his life for the sins of the world and risen again. But still, they had to interpret it in light of that and build on the foundation of what had been the old covenant. So Paul was very familiar with the foundations of marriage and family. And how all of that got started. Where did it get started? Well, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. It's in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 that we see the beginning of creation. We see the creation of mankind. We see that God created them, male and female, in his own image. And God did something wonderful there in the garden. He put this thing together called marriage and began the first family. And we discover in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 the purposes of marriage. If some of you are asking this morning, maybe some of you young people, should I ever get married? 
Why do we get married? What is marriage? Is marriage, should we go along with culture and say marriage isn't really that important anyway? Man, let's just find somebody that we can uh, live with and live with them. If we can't live with them anymore, let's move out. Or is marriage something that is very important in the heart and in the mind of God? Well, we see God's plan and, and purposes in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, we see that marriage was com- created for companionship. In Genesis 2.18, God said it was not good. By the way, everything else God had created, he had said was good. But he said there was something taking place even before the fall of Adam and Eve that was not good. He said it's not good that man should dwell alone. I will create a helpmate, another of the same but different for him. God created a woman for Adam, and he put the two together. So marriage That first marriage was for a companionship. And I'll say this to everybody in here. Your spouse should be your best friend, bar none. Your wife, men, your husbands, ladies, that should be your best friend. Marriage was created to be a companionship like no other. And, of course, Genesis 1.28 tells us there was a, a procreation purpose of marriage. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so that was God's design for bringing children into this world that kids would have a mom and a dad who love God, love one another, and love them. And so there was companionship, there was, well, there was procreation, but also God created marriage for sexual and spiritual union. For this cause, Jesus said, quoting from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And a lot of times we only think of the, the physical union, that one flesh, that the, the night, that, that first honeymoon night is the time that God says that you're to consummate that marriage and become one flesh. But it is more than physical union. It's spiritual union. It is emotional union. Two are truly becoming one in every sense of the word. While they don't lose their individuality and their personalities, thank God Tina and I are different it would be a boring marriage if she were just like me. So I thank God that we we were goofing off the other nights over at the uh, pool's house for the ool party. You say, well, what's the ool? Well, you call it an ool party. Don't let the teenagers tell you why it's an ool party. But but, um, some of you caught on to that, I can tell. But uh, but, but Tina was goofing off. We were having a good time, and and, uh, we were kind of walking away, and, and, and uh, Tina and I, were, when we were leaving, she goes, did I embarrass you? I said, no, we would be boring if, if, if we only had what I brought into that conversation. And so I thank God that he made us different, but yet there is a oneness, there is a, a unity there, and it is physical, it's spiritual, it's emotional, and every way two are becoming one flesh, and that is God's purpose for marriage, that the two would become one. That's why I encourage young people uh, a lot of them that have strong convictions for, for the physical and, and say, well, listen, I'm going to abstain from physical activity with the opposite sex, but they get involved in emotional and spiritual. You, you know, I even, you say, well, Robbie, are you anti-spiritual? You don't think that a boy and a girl that are just starting the courtship or dating process ought to hold hands and pray together? I'm like, no, I don't believe they should hold hands and pray together because once they begin to bond spiritually, they will want to, it will be natural for them to want to bond physically. And so they need to wait until they're ready for that. It's something God designed for marriage, that emotional and spiritual and physical oneness. And then finally, it's a picture of covenant love. When you read the rest of the Old Testament, the Song of Solomon is a a beautiful picture of this. 
a conjugal love, but also a picture of God's relationship with Israel. The prophets often spoke of God's relationship with Israel as a marriage, and when Israel rebelled, they were hurting that picture of marriage. And Jesus applied the same principle in the New Testament, and then the apostles come along, uh, like the apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, and he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So if you're wondering, what is the purpose of marriage? Why did God design marriage? Companionship, procreation, sexual and spiritual union, and to be a picture of covenant love. We exchange rings because they represent, uh, they're the sign of our marriage covenant. But our marriage itself is to be a picture of covenant love. As my kids want to learn about who God is, they need to see me loving my wife as Christ loves the church. And they want to know how the church should respond to that. They see how Tina responds to my love and her respect for her husband. And Ephesians 5 lays that beautiful picture of marriage out. Those are the purposes of marriage. So we take very seriously the commandments of Scripture. And we have a strict interpretation of what marriage is all about because God has a strict interpretation of what marriage is all about. Adultery pictures a world that is unfaithful to God, and we don't want our marriage to reflect a world that is unfaithful to God. When God is rebuking Israel through the prophets in the Old Testament, he says, you have played the harlot. You've committed spiritual adultery. And so God hates adultery within a marriage context. He hates sexual relations outside of the marriage context because it pictures a world that is unfaithful to God. And we're to picture the opposite of that. We're to picture in our marriage a covenant relationship. And that means, young people, the covenant has to be in place for you to have the conjugal relationship. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 16 says that God hates divorce. And I know that's another one of those hot potatoes, and we'll, we'll close this message by talking about the grace of God that brings healing and gets us back on that road to recovery. But you would say, well, why does God hate it so bad? Because it's not a good picture of God's covenant relationship with his people. Even God himself had to refer to Israel as experiencing a divorce, but a bringing back together eventually. In Malachi chapter 2 and verse 5, Prophet Malachi says, God's covenant is life and peace. God's commandments. You say, young people sometimes, is God just trying to kill my good time? He knows I have all these temptations, all these desires, and he doesn't want me to have any fun. No, no, no. God's commandments are life and peace. God's trying to protect your good time. Let me ask you a question. Why is there a burn ban in the state of Georgia throughout the summer months? Why do we have a burn ban? Why can't I just go set the woods on fire behind my house? Why is there a burn ban? Is it because we're trying to ruin good time? Don't want them to have a huge bonfire at the pastor's house? Is that what it is? That's not what it's all about. It's about protecting natural resources. It's about using wisdom and using discretion to say, you know what, this thing can get out of hand. And it can ruin somebody's good time in a heartbeat. We see wildfires spreading all over the place. And that's what's happening with sexual perversion in America today. It's spreading like wildfire because we haven't kept it in the context that God placed it, and that's marriage, a covenant relationship. Not a contract, no need for prenuptial agreements, a covenant relationship between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And that's the way God established it from the beginning. God hasn't changed his mind on that. It's still between one man and one woman for a lifetime. 
And a lot of ministry, a, a lot of us taking the grace of God to the world means, yeah, the, the wildfire spreading, and we've got to go put those. Leland, I tell you, when wildfires spread, they call in reinforcements. <laughs> People have to go and put out the fire. And, and a lot of ministry today is, is bringing healing and the grace of God and going and putting out some fires. But God's standard is one man, one woman for a lifetime. God is protecting something sacred and beautiful. And so to betray God's word is to destroy that beautiful picture, and we don't want to do that. So we take seriously the commandments of Scripture. Number two, we take seriously the commitment to sanctification, our commitment to sanctification. We see God's will clearly stated in verse 3, for this is God's will for you, your sanctification. That is, you're setting apart. God is setting you apart. Sanctification means to be set apart. God is setting you apart from life on the Via Ignatia, the, the Ignatian road of sexual perversions. Paul says, this, this sanctification, this holiness of lifestyle, this purity is what separates you and makes you radically different, your sanctification. He says, let me be very specific, verse 3. God's will is your sanctification, that you be set, set apart, that you be radically different, specifically that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That means that sexual relations should be in the context, one man, one woman for a lifetime. It means if you're married, that is only with your spouse. If you're not married, that you're saving yourself for marriage. The bride of Christ must show self-control, verse 4, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Have some self-control about yourself. This is not going to be the norm. It wasn't the norm in Thessalonica either. Look at verse 5. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. They're acting the way they act because they do not know God. And so he's saying to the church, don't act like you don't know God either. You should be radically different from them. We don't embrace the standards of popular culture. And I know it's so hard to do that sometimes when, when every TV show, every TV show tolerates adultery and has a token homosexual as one of the main characters. When porn permeates the internet, and now many of the ads that we see on regular, you can almost not even watch a sports show anymore because of the advertisements. When there's a billboard in Atlanta for a company called Ashley Madison, which is a company that arranges secret affairs, and they put a billboard up with the pictures of FDR, JFK, and Bill Clinton. And the billboard reads, Who says cheaters never prosper? We're living in Thessalonica. Who says cheaters never prosper? You'll get away with it. It's no big deal. When our kids, our Pastor Ben was speaking on this subject to our teenagers, and he shared with me some words to a song. And many Christians celebrate this artist named Luke Bryan, and here are the words to a song. I remember hearing this, watching a football game. There was a softball game going on behind us, and this song played again and again and again and again, and I'm like, some dad needs to go over to that softball field. Maybe it should have been me. And, and, and turn this song off because there are little teenage girls playing ball, and they're playing this song between innings, and it was driving me absolutely berserk but the song said, I got that real good, feel-good stuff under the seat of my big, jacked-up truck. You got that suntan skirt and boots waiting on you to look my way and scoot your little hot self over here, girl. 
and hand me another beer. What was his goal? All them other boys want to take you downtown, but this guy wants to lay you down and love you right. And children walk around singing that, and parents say, that's cool with me. That's okay with me. That little boys would go around singing about the exploitation of girls like that. And it breaks my heart and say, some dad needs to stand up and say, any boy who would listen to that song will not date my girl. And anybody who would, any daughter who would listen to music like that would, would say, no, no, you're staying in the house tonight. Your attitude's in the wrong place. But we, we say, oh, it's just music. It's no big deal. It is a very big deal because music shapes the culture more than any other medium. And then social media. My wife is the social preacher, if you haven't picked up on that yet. But she says, come on, ladies, why are you letting your daughters put selfies of themselves in bikinis, Christian girls, all over the Internet? You can't take that back. Why is that taking place today? All modesty is gone. We take seriously our commitment to sanctification, that we're to be radically different, that we're to abide by the principles and precepts of this book and not look like the rest of the world, not sound like the rest of the world, not sing like the rest of the world, not talk like the rest of the world. Man, you quote a song like that, and it sounds crude when the preacher says it. Pastor Robbie, and, you know, I never thought it was bad until I heard you say it. Man, that sounded crude coming from the preacher. Listen, if the preacher don't need to say it, none of the rest of us need to say it. We need dads who would say, that's not cool. We can't compromise. You heard the story of the bear hunter who was out hunting in the great northwest. He was about to shoot him a grizzly, and the grizzly spoke up. Of course, the guy had never heard a grizzly bear speak before, so he thought he'd better listen. The grizzly said, wait a minute, let's compromise. And the guy said, well, listen, I came to bear hunt. I want a bear coat. I want, a, I want a bear fur coat when I, when I leave this area. And the bear said, well, that's okay. I just want a warm meal. And I got a way both of us can get what we want if we just compromise. The man said, well, if we can compromise and both get what we want, that sounds good to me. And on that day, the bear walked away with his warm meal. And the man walked away with his bear fur coat wrapped around him. So what's the point? The point is, if you compromise with sexual temptation, it will eat you alive every time. You tolerate a little. You give it an inch, it takes a mile. Does your music, does your clothing, does your flirtatiousness, do your standards compromise God's standards? Is the church too hard on this subject? Sadly, I would say the church isn't even close to the holiness and heart of God on this subject anymore. I don't think we're too hard. I don't think we're even close. We look radical because we're harder on these subjects than the world, but we're not even close. And he goes on to say, and don't, verse 6, don't defraud your brother. Some translations, some of the more modern translations say don't defraud your brother or sister in this because what it's trying to say is, uh, as it interprets in the translation Young men, you should not defraud young ladies. You shouldn't take advantage of young ladies in this area. But what it's really saying, very literally, is young men, don't defraud your brothers in Christ in these areas. So wait a minute. It's, so it's, does it deal with homosexuality? That's not what he's dealing with here. How do you defraud your brother? You defraud your brother by when you take something that belongs to him. So if you commit adultery, 
that woman belongs to another man, that's defrauding your brother. But listen, young people, those of you who are single, if you are involved physically with a young lady, guys, and then she marries somebody else, you've robbed him of something that belonged to him. You defrauded your brother in that. And so that's why God says, wait until you're wearing this ring before you get involved physically. And be careful about the emotional and spiritual connections that you're building now because the physical will naturally want to follow in the process. And then third, we take seriously the conviction of the Spirit. As Bible-believing Christians, we believe in the Holy Spirit. I'm going to bring a message on the, the Spirit of God. We take seriously the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, For God did not call us to uncleanness, but holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. In other words, if you are a born-again Christian, then the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you, and the Holy Spirit is convicting you to examine your heart, even this morning, saying, listen, you're tolerating a little too much here. You're flirting with disaster here. You're walking a little bit close to the line that God has called you away from. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9 says, if we do not have the Spirit of God, then we do not belong to Him. If you're involved in promiscuous behavior, violating your covenant vows in marriage, or you're not married yet, involved in in, in fornication, sexual immorality, then the Holy Spirit, if you're a child of God, the Holy Spirit is convicting you and will make you feel absolutely miserable. And so that's enough reason right there to say, listen, I don't want to make my life miserable. You're saying, but I, I, I don't feel miserable. I'm kind of cool with it. My boyfriend or girlfriend, they're kind of cool with it. We don't feel miserable. We're having fun. Sin's pleasurable for a season. I would say if you, if you say, listen, there's no conviction of the Holy Spirit, then you don't belong to Christ. He who has not the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. Romans 8 9. So we don't get saved and say, you know what? I got saved, I've got salvation, but one day I want to get the Holy Spirit. No, listen, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. You get saved, the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in your life and begins to convict you of sin. You say, that's not right. Galatians 5.16 says, if we walk in the Spirit, that means if we're sensitive and obedient to the Spirit's prompting in our life, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18, 18 through 20 says, flee sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do, do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received of God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Can you imagine, ladies, if your fathers had always gone with you everywhere you ever went? Some of the young ladies are thinking, man, I don't think I can handle that. Think about this. If your dad went with you everywhere you ever went. If you go to the movies, dad goes with you. If you go on a date, dad goes with you. If you go to the prom, dad goes to the prom with you. If you go to a party, dad goes to the party. When you go to school, dad goes and he sits right there with you. You go to practice ball, dad is right there. Every time you email, dad is over your shoulder reading the email. If you Instagram, Dad sees the Instagram. If you Snapchat, tweet, Facebook, whatever you do these days, if you're doing it, Dad is right there superintending every moment of the process. Some ladies are thinking, man, I don't think I could have handled that. But listen, here's the wonderful thing about the Spirit of God. He doesn't leave you. He seals you to the day of redemption. That means you can't say, wait a minute, Jesus, you stay right over here because I'm going to go do something that might be a little bit sinful. Romans says his Spirit is, 
bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. God is right there with us all the time. If we're born again, he doesn't say, okay, well, go, go do your little sin and then come back. And he is right there with us. His spirit, spirit bearing witness with us, we are children of God. If there's no serious convention, conviction, there's no serious or genuine salvation. Say, Pastor, wow, I've really messed up then. I've really really blown it. I haven't lived by God's standards or I haven't raised my kids by God's standards and I've suffered some consequences and the Holy Spirit's convicted me this morning. Hey, here's the wonderful thing about the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We're in great company. (laughs) We're in great company. David, man after God's own heart, king of Israel, he wrote to that nation for eternity. Fell into temptation. When kings were out at war, he fell into temptation. He fell into adultery. You know the story, David and Bathsheba. Nathan the prophet confronted him on that. The Spirit of God brought conviction into his life. David later would write these words in Psalm 32 after this experience. He said, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. What was David saying in Psalm 32? He said, while I was living in this sin, I was miserable. And you will be too. If you're a child of God, you will be too. If, if, you're, if you're a born-again Christian, the Spirit lives inside of you, and you're trying to live according to the standards of this world, you will be miserable. David was miserable and broken and convicted. Depressed before God. Then he says, But I acknowledge my sin to you. My iniquity I have hidden no more. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. In Psalm 51, David says in a prayer, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Restore that right and steadfast spirit within me. Restore the joy of my salvation. David didn't lose his salvation, did he? But he lost his joy. Some of you this morning are saying, Pastor, I've, I've, I've blown it. Places I've been, things I've seen. Relationships that I've messed up. Listen, the good news is everything that we've read has to be filtered through the cross of Jesus Christ. God loves you. God is ready to start brand new with you in that covenant relationship. And he says, I want you to be radically different from this day on. Be cleansed by the blood of Jesus and be clean and live clean before me from this day forward. And it, with a true repentance. Jesus, uh, David said in Psalm 51, you don't want me to go sacrifice more animals. What you want in me is a broken and contrite heart. And that's what God wants in us when we have tried to identify too much with this world and its standards, that we would just be brokenhearted. Say, Lord Jesus, I'm coming back to you. I'm going to do it your way. Would you bow your heads with me?